A few years ago, a uh, college football team traveled to play against their number one rival. Uh, the game was huge and that the winner was guaranteed an automatic bowl appearance that would generate over a million dollars to that team's athletic department. And so, as you can imagine, it was a pretty exciting event. And as they gathered together in the locker room before they went out on the field, the quarterback got everybody together, got them all fired up. They got all excited. And he got them all just wound up, and they go charging through the doors. He led the charge, bust the door down to go out onto the field, only he went through the wrong door, and they fell into the swimming pool. Half the team fell into the swimming pool before they realized what was going on. And uh, true story, and the reality of all of it is, is that, you know, it's funny to hear about something like that. But there's also a very serious message that it poses, and that's a serious lesson as it relates to the danger of following leaders who don't know where they're going, or worse yet, that are going in the wrong direction. Jesus warned, if the blind man follows the blind, won't they both fall into a pit? Everything rises or falls with leadership. You know, whether it's a, a nation, a family, a business, or the local church, the bottom line is in the church, the Holy Spirit imparts gifts to believers for ministry. And among those gifts are pastors and teachers, according to Ephesians chapter 4, helps and administration, according to 1 Corinthians 12. And in our ongoing study of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul moves from discussing the congregation to dealing with the pastors. The ministry, effectiveness, and testimony of any church is largely a reflection of its leaders. There is an inseparable link between the character of a church and the quality of its leadership. Jesus said in Luke 6.40, Everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And Paul urged the Corinthians to be imitators of me. He said to the Philippians, he said, The things that you have seen, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, you practice those things, Philippians 4.9. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, Paul reminds Timothy and all of us who love the Word of God, of the importance of godly leadership. The importance of godly leadership. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at what he's talking about, what he's referring to in 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 7, he says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer... It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In a way of background, if you recall from our study in the book of Acts, for three years the apostle Paul labored in the city of Ephesus, and he established a sound church, blessed with leadership in the highest caliber, uh, when he was about to leave Asia Minor, Paul summoned the elders, the Ephesian elders, uh, to gather together for a final meeting. And he called them together and they gathered on the shore of Miletus. And Paul solemnly warned these elders to be on guard because savage wolves would soon come. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to Acts chapter 20 and notice the warning that he gives to this group of leaders in this particular church. In Acts chapter 20, as he gathered them together on the shores of Miletus, he warned them to pay attention, to be on guard, because there was a day coming, and it wouldn't be long after this that the day finally arrived. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel or purpose of God. He says, Be on guard or be on alert. Stay, stay alert. Pay attention. Don't let your guard down for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. 
He says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul warned that the day was coming, and here he is talking to Timothy five years later. That day had arrived. Uh, the church in Ephesus was caught in the deathly grip of false teachers. And the qualifications that Paul gives in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 2 through verse 7, they're set against the backdrop of unqualified teachers. He places God's standard against what the Ephesians had allowed the leadership to degenerate into. And I think it's important that we recognize and understand that there is a responsibility that must be taken on the part of the people, the part of the church at Ephesus, to have allowed this to take place. And that's important for us to recognize and to note. Because he's saying to them, listen, you take responsibility, you have an accountability that you have allowed the teachers among you to go in a direction different than that which God had set as a standard. It is your responsibility, it is our responsibility, it is my responsibility, it is all of our responsibility to make sure that those who teach us the word of God are teaching us the full counsel of God. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, those who were commended as more noble-minded were those who examined the scripture daily to make sure that what was being spoken was lining up according to the standard that was set as far as the word of God is concerned. What he's saying to them is, listen, you have allowed this to happen because you didn't do your job. Your job was to hold them responsible to teach the full counsel of God, and you didn't do that. And as a result, from among your own arose those, and not only is it collectively the congregation's responsible, more specifically saying that it is the the responsibility of leaders to protect the flock. It is a primary calling of anyone in a spiritual leadership or oversight position to protect the flock from those who would come in and lead them astray. Not only are they to protect as shepherds, to protect as shepherds protected their sheep against wolves, they're to protect and also to feed and nourish their their congregation or those under their, their care. And so when we look at this, He's saying that, you know, there's a responsibility that each one of us need to recognize and understand that, you know, we can be guilty of allowing people to come in and lead us away from the truth of the Word of God. And the only way we can hold them accountable is by checking what they say against the standard that God has set in His Word. And it goes even further than that, as we'll see in this letter to Timothy, because he said, not only are we accountable and responsible to hold those who teach us in in, in, uh, accordance to the standard of God's word, but it was even worse than that, because he said that, you know what, the people have accumulated for themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear instead of being committed to the truth of God's word. We've got to be very careful that we don't accumulate for ourselves people who tell us what we want to hear. Like politicians, you know, it's like, we'll elect anyone who tells us what we want to hear. You know, tell me what you will give me, tell me what you will do for me, and then I'll elect you in exchange for you doing that, I'll give you my vote. Oftentimes we've got to be careful in the church that we do not, you know, lead people in that direction, but we hold them to the full counsel of God because it's not what we want to hear that is important, it's what we need to hear, and that is the truth of the Word of God. You know, none of us want to hear when when we're doing what's wrong before God, because we wouldn't be doing what's wrong before God if we were that committed to do what's right. And he's saying, listen, you know what, I don't want to hear when I'm guilty of sin before God, but our responsibility as pastors, teachers, is to be committed to the full counsel of God, saying, look, you know what, frankly, I'm sorry, I don't care what you want to hear. The fact is, I love you enough to confront you with truth, because all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God would be adequately equipped to do that which God has called us and prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. What he's saying is, listen, you know what? Every one of us, that sin nature, wants to hear that what we're doing is okay, but the standard of God's word says, listen, what you're doing is wrong before God. And, you know, being rebuked is an act of love. Being corrected is an act of love. Any of us with children, whoever corrected our children, it's an act of love that we care enough to correct them and to train them and to turn them in the direction that they need to go that's pleasing to God. Train up a child in the way that, he's, that he should go. At the, end, at, the, and, and, you know, at the end of all of it, that he will go the way that is pleasing to God. 
There's nothing fun about discipline. There's nothing fun about being rebuked. There's nothing that's you know, pleasant about any of that. But at the end of the day, truth will set us free from the grasp of sin. See, if you really love somebody and they're doing what's wrong before God, how can you not warn them of the danger that lies ahead? How can you not jump up in front of their face and say, listen, the direction that you're going, the wages of sin is death. For the believer, it's separation from God. <clears throat> the ultimate may even be physical death. I mean, the way that you're going is, is, is taking you away from God. To the unbelieving world that we come in contact with, the wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, they allowed this to happen. Not only did they allow it to happen, but they looked for those who would tell them what they wanted to hear. What were some of those things that they were guilty of? They were guilty of teaching false doctrine that we saw as we studied the first chapter. They were teaching that which was in direct violation of what the Word of God taught. They had turned aside to fruitless discussions. They had gotten sidetracked. They had gone over here and they were debating all these things that didn't make any difference at all as far as the kingdom of God was concerned. And so the enemy likes us to get sidetracked because while we're sidetracked arguing, debating with one another over forms of ministry and other things that could be going on, you know what, there are people over here that are lost and they're dying and they're on their way to hell and we are entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only message that can save that person from that final damnation. And while we're over here bickering and arguing, there are people that are lost that are going to hell. See, fruitless discussions. What does this have to do with God's kingdom? What does this have to do with saving those who are lost and on their way to hell? What does this have to do with building up believers and equip equipping them for the work of ministry and making disciples? What does any of this have to do with anything? If it has nothing to do with it, then just forget about it and let's get back over here and focus on what God has called us to do. To preach the word of God. To teach sound doctrine. To defend the faith. See, that's, that's what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy as a pastor, as a teacher. Don't get sidetracked by all this other stuff. It's so easy to do. They misused the law. They misunderstood the gospel. They started to teach people that you can somehow work your way to heaven. But it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. They got turned aside from even the essence of the gospel. We pre preach Christ and Him crucified. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. No one will ever get to heaven working their way there because all of our works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. But they were turning people that way. Some of them had risen to a position of leadership were women, and that was forbidden by the word of God. And we saw that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Others were guilty of sin, and we'll see in chapter 5. And these elders were guilty of sin and, and needed to be rebuked publicly so that all would see what was going on. There's a correlation between leadership and the health of a church. And if there's corrupt leadership, you'll have a corrupt church. And that's just the reality of it. It all starts with the head. You want to see people, I'll tell you what, when I coached baseball for a number of years, and I had kids that were just messed up kids, I mean, just messed up kids. You know, and I'd wonder, what in the world? And you know what? It didn't take long to figure out why they were so messed up the first time I met their mom or dad. Isn't that the truth? It's like you're going, man, no wonder this kid's got problems. Holy smokes, you know, they need a paranectomy. <laughs> it's just the reality of it. You know, and then, you know, and that's the same in the church. You know, if you've got a church that's messed up, just take a good hard, hard look at leadership. Because everything starts there. And so before discussing the godly criteria that must be met in order to lead God's people, <clears throat> Paul gives insight to Timothy into the call to spiritual leadership. And that's what we're going to take a look at here as we take a look at just at this particular point, just the call to spiritual leadership. In 1 Timothy 3.1, he, he lays out for us some, some facets that relate to the call to spiritual leadership. The first thing that we see is that it is a respectable calling. The word trustworthy. Better yet, the phrase a trustworthy statement is found five times and only in the pastoral epistles. Each time it introduces a truth in these each time it introduces a truth of great importance and familiarity among believers. He's saying that a trustworthy statement, if you'll notice, he said this is a trustworthy statement. 
<clears throat> you can bank on this. This is, a, this, is, this is self-evident. It doesn't need any proof. It doesn't need a long discussion or any dialogue about it. It's self-evident that if a man desires to be in a position of spiritual leadership, that's a good thing. I mean, that's a good thing. That's what I call when I'm going through the Bible those no-brainer things that God gets across to me. Chuck, this is a no-brainer. I mean, you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to study it. You don't have to dig into it very long. It's just trustworthy. If you want to be involved in this position of spiritual leadership, that's a great position. That's a worthy calling. That's very respectable. See, in simple terms, Paul's saying, hey, listen, you know what? If you want to be a godly leader, that's a good thing. You know, because in Paul's day, the pastorate wasn't something entered into lightly. Preachers of God's truth were despised outcasts, yet it was in God's eyes a respectable calling. You know, you stop and think about it. You know, you live in a culture that says, hey, listen, we want to just hear that what we're doing is okay. We want you to validate whatever it is that we want to do. And see, those who are called to proclaim God's truth are flying in the face of a culture that's in rebellion against God. No one wants to hear that what they're doing is sin. No one wants to hear that it's an evidence of their sin nature and the fact that it's evident in their life or manifest in their life or visible to others is just reflecting what God already knows about us that none are righteous, no, not one. We're all condemned when Adam sinned, sin had entered the world and with sin came death. Spiritual separation from God, ultimately physical death. The soul that sin shall die. And so nobody wants to hear that what they're doing is exactly what God says is true. You are guilty and what you're doing you know, is what God uses to call that guilt to your attention. You know, we are sinners, we need a savior. We are condemned, we need mercy. You know, and, and that's what it's all about. And so as we look at this, this respectable calling or tr this trustworthy statement, you know, no one wants to hear that what they're doing is wrong. And so people didn't run to that position and go, boy, I can't wait to preach God's truth. I can't wait to be persecuted. I can't wait to be stoned. I can't wait to be exiled. I can't wait to be sawn in half. I can't wait to be, you know, you know, thrown out of our community. I can't wait to lose my business, my home, my family. Boy, I can't wait to do that. You know, and so no one entered into that very lightly. The, the problem is very simple, and that's this. It's a compelling calling. I mean, when God calls a person to ministry, you know, what? what's the choice? As we'll see as we go through there. You know, the record of the developing church constantly affirms the importance of spiritual leadership. Everywhere that Paul went, he appointed elders for them in every church. Everywhere that he went. In Acts 14, it says he appointed elders for them in every church. Elders, along with the apostles, presided at the Jerusalem council. Paul appointed elders at Ephesus that we just saw. He addressed the book of Philippians, quote, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Also, we notice there's a plurality of them, that there's to be a number of them so that no man ever thinks that he's God. There's one God, we're not him. And so you have a plurality of leadership so no one thinks they got a handle on all truth. See, we've got to be very careful in this plurality that we are open to listen to those God has, risen, has raised up to work with us so that we can listen to, wait, maybe I'm going the wrong direction. Maybe my idea isn't right before God. I'll bounce it off other godly people. Why? Because there is safety in a multitude of counselors. But when we have an agenda and we don't listen to those around us, then we can become blindsided to what's going on. We can be tunnel vision and go in a direction that, you know what, isn't going to further the kingdom of God. And if anything else, it'll cause division and not harmony. So as we look at this, it's trustworthy. You know, no one entered into that position lightly. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Where Peter addresses the idea of spiritual leadership. He says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 5, <clears throat> therefore I exhort the elders among you, again, plurality, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. John MacArthur, commenting on this particular passage, says, since godly leaders have always been the backbone of the church, it is essential that they be qualified. In an unsuccessful church, the issue is all too often not poor programs or uncommitted people, but substandard leadership. Godly leaders are not produced by Bible colleges or seminaries. 
They merely give them the tools with which to work. Nor do pulpit committees or ordination councils make men fit for the ministry. They merely have the responsibility to recognize those who already are. Only the Holy Spirit can produce a true spiritual leader. The second thing we notice back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that it is a restricted calling. And what we mean by restricted, we saw in the last time that we were together, it says if any man, the word for man is man. And that's all that it means. As opposed to a woman, it means a man. It says if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Church leadership is not for everyone. As we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, very clearly God's requirement is that church leaders be men and not women. Uh, it went, we went into great detail on that in the last time that we were together. In this passage, we not only note the phrase any man, but also the fact that a woman could hardly be, as we see here in, in, chapter, in verse um, um, 2, a woman could hardly be a one-woman man. I mean, you know, it's simple. You know what I'm saying? Stop and think about it. I know this is pretty deep for some of you and it's early yet, but, you know, you can hardly be a one-woman man if you're a woman. So the reality of it is to clarify, if in case that needs clarification, <clears throat> is that we've already learned that women have a very vital, vitally important role in the church, in the home, and in society. And that role, however, does not include leadership over God's people in the church. And that's just the way it is. Number three. It's also a relentless calling. It is a relentless calling. We see that the call to spiritual leadership is a relentless call. Two words stand out. One is aspires. The other is desires. Those who seek the office of overseer must have a spirit-given, compelling desire for it. The word aspires only appears one other time. In fact, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn with me and look at that for a second. It gives us clarity as to what the meaning of the word is. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in a section that deals with money, in verse 9 it says, But for those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And here we go. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. The translation that we get by longing for it is the same word that we have, aspires. <clears throat> and, it, <clears throat> excuse me. and it means the physical act of reaching out for something. So as we're reaching out in a negative context, it's talking about a person who loves money more than God, and they're always constantly reaching out to try to get more money. In this particular context, it's a good thing. It's a person who is reaching out to try to uh, gain that office that he's looking to get into, but it has to do with reaching out, the physical act of reaching out. When you go back to 1 Timothy 3.1, the word desires then is a compassionate or relentless calling in order to meet that inner desire that a person has, he then makes an external effort to reach out to that particular office. So you've got the inner desire that's given to a person by God to be in a position of spiritual oversight. The act that he takes externally is aspires, meaning he goes about trying to find a way in which he can do what God has called him to do, which is to serve in the way that God is leading him. So there's the inner desire, then there's the outward action, and the two are in harmony trying to reach out and do it. Now, sadly, I've spoken to men in ministry or even on elder boards who were there because it was the passion of their family or friends or relatives relatives for them. And that, and, and, that's, and that violates what we see happening here because God is saying, listen, you know what? God gives a person an inner passion, a relentless calling, a desire to serve him in certain ways. And when a person takes a position because it's somebody else's passion, somebody else's calling, somebody else's desire... And it's particularly true of those who grow up in Christian homes where the parent wants to see their child live out what they have lived out themselves, their calling maybe, or worse than that, they didn't answer that call or heed that call and now hope that somebody in their family would be more obedient to God than they were. I've talked to men on elder boards who have said things like, you know, it isn't something I ever wanted to do, but they came to me and they convinced me that, you know, God was leading me in this direction. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, that is wrong. 
that is absolutely wrong according to the word of God. As we see it being taught, it's very clear. Or those who say, well, listen, if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll serve in that capacity, then I'll serve. Or if you can't get anybody else to do it, then come back and we'll talk about it some more. That is absolute nonsense before God. Anyone who's in a position of spiritual leadership that isn't there because God has given them a burning, relentless desire and passion to be there is in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing, and everybody else suffers as a result. The man truly called to ministry is marked by both an inward, consuming, relentless passion and a disciplined, outward pursuit. For him, the ministry is not the best option. It's the only option. There's nothing else he could do with his life that would ever fulfill him less than total obedience to God's leading in his life. And accordingly, he works diligently to prepare himself to be qualified for service. Some are called earlier in life, some are called later in life. But when you've got that relentless passion to serve God, you know what? You better just get on it and start doing it because you will never have peace with God until you're walking in complete obedience. And then I will tell you this from personal experience. You will never have, you will never have more joy, more comfort, more satisfaction, more peace than when you know you're where you're supposed to be because God has called you to do what you're doing and he has equipped you, he has empowered you for the work that he has called and prepared for you to do before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians 2.10. There is no better place to be. This is not a burden for me to do what I do. It is not. I love it. I love to prepare. I, can, I mean, it's like, you know, but no one should ever aspire to have that ambition. You know, turn with me for a second to Mark chapter 10. You see, the person who is led by God doesn't seek the office or the title, but they're seeking the work itself. You know, it's not the office, it's not the title, it's not the position of responsibility, it's the actual work itself that they seek to do. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus warned his disciples that ambition for office, authority, power corrupts, but desire for service purifies the servant of God. In Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 42, it says, And calling, him, and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is in direct, as a direct answer to the question that they had raised in verse 37. And that was this. Lord... Can one of us sit at your right and one of us sit at your left when you establish your kingdom? We can't wait to be in power with you. We can't wait to have a position of authority with you. Don't forget, this is one of the same guys, John, who said to Jesus one day when he was upset with people who didn't see things his way, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven? You know? Either they continue to pray about it till they see it my way, or, you know what, we'll just call down fire from heaven, but one day or another, they're going to line themselves with the direction we want to go. You know, this is a direct response to that question, can we be in authority with you, because we can't wait to put the screws to somebody who, you know what, just isn't lining up underneath our authority. We can't wait to get in that position. Jesus said, no, you know what, listen, that's how the world thinks. That's how the lost think. That's how a sinner thinks. But it's not so among you. If you wish to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be a servant to everyone. And I'll give you the example, Jesus says. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Peter warned the elders the same thing. He goes, you know what, don't take that position of overseer or authority so that you can tell other people what to do when you want them to do it and the way you want it done. You take that position to shepherd the flock of God to be examples to them. 
You know, to protect them from false teachers, to, to teach them spiritual truth, to listen to what they have to say, to be concerned about their well-being, to be concerned about their, their spiritual uh, uh, good. Uh, you're not there so you can tell other people what to do when you want them to do it and why you want it to do it and not be open and listen or approachable or teachable. You know, every disciple must be open and teachable. Every person in leadership has to be open to anyone who comes and says, I have a concern, and my concern is founded upon the Word of God. My concern is something that I just heard doesn't line up with what I believe Scripture to teach. And you better be open to listen to my question. And then if you're going to rebuke and correct me, praise God for that. Show me in your word. But if you can't correct me and what I'm teaching or telling you is truth from God's word, then you better change the direction you're going. You better change the, 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 you know, your attitude. You better change your philosophy. You better change your opinion because I have a responsibility as a member of a church, for example, to hold you accountable to that truth. Otherwise, we'll be guilty as the Ephesians were. You just let people rise up among you, tell you what, the, you know, what they want, and you don't hold them accountable to anything. And Paul indicted them for that. And it's not to be mean-spirited. It's not to be vindictive. It's not to, you know, who do you think you are challenging or questioning us? Hey, there's something wrong with any leader that isn't willing to be approached by someone who has a godly, legitimate question founded upon the Word of God. As parents, you better be open to your children. Come and say, Mom, Dad, I got a question about something you said. I got a question about something that you're doing. As an employer out in the business world, you should be welcoming people who work under your charge to come to you and say, I, I have a question about that. You know, it bothers me. I, I get a sense that you want me to lie, cheat, or steal. You know, and as a Christian, that, that kind of bothers me. It troubles me. What, what is, is that really what I heard you tell me to do? You know, tell them the check is in the mail. When it's, we haven't got to check to anybody. I can't do that. We've got to always be open and accountable to those around us to hold us to godly standards. As iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another. You know, as we go through this, you know, the church must be led by men who have a relentless passion and desire to serve the Lord and serve His people and not lord their position over others. A truly humble servant of God would never be caught saying anything like, you know, it's just our way, my way, or the highway. If you don't like it, you know, too bad. That's, that, that, that's not godly leadership. That's not the example that Jesus gave. We've got to be careful. No matter what position of our leadership we may find ourselves in any area of life, never get to the point where you're not approachable to be challenged if what you're doing is wrong before God. If you're standing upon a word of God, praise God. There's no firmer foundation than that. But if you're standing on, you know, the house built on sand, man, you better, you, better, you better run as fast as you can because destruction is near. The word of God. You know, various times in my ministry here at Calvary, I've been approached and asked if, if I would serve on the elder board. And I've, I've always declined to do so. And there's been reasons for it. And the, the, the number one reason is that God never gave me that desire to serve in that capacity. But he has given me a desire to preach and teach his word. And when that desire of someone else was going to supersede the desire and passion, I know that God had already given me to teach his word. And when the two were in conflict, I had to respectfully say, you know what, no, I'm not interested in serving in that position. And the reason is this, because this is what I know God has called me to do. Now, what's fascinating about that is there is, you know, a sense where people feel rejected by that. You know, they feel like, well, wait a minute, we're trying to bring you in and you've just rejected us. And my point is very simple. You know what? You can't draw somebody in that God hasn't given a desire to be a part. And so you look for those qualifications that are already there. Spiritual leaders should be looking, in a church, for example, as a whole, looking for people who, who qualify according to, to what God lays out as godly criteria. You can approach them and say, you know what, Here, here's an, an area that we think that maybe God has prepared you for. Do you have a desire to serve in that area? Now, inevitably, you might have a person say, you know what, that's interesting that you came to me because, you know, I have this desire to serve in that area. Now, you've come and asked me to serve in that area. And you know what? And if I meet the qualifications, because desire is not enough alone, by the way. And we'll talk about that. But if we meet the qualifications, then that's how God leads. That's how God directs. He takes the desire that he's put on somebody else's heart. He puts it on the heart of someone else that comes and says, is this your desire? And they go, you know what? It is my desire. But what's more interesting about this approach is this. If you have a God-given desire to serve in ministry, seek out people who can help you accomplish that which is God, where God is leading you. 
I've had people come and say, you know what, I got this burden or God's given me a real desire to teach the Word of God. Hey, you know what, then let's talk about it. Because just the desire alone is not enough. I've had people say they've had a desire to teach, but all for the wrong reasons, and they haven't been gifted by God. They try it, and they fail miserably. So, you know what, I'm not sure always that desire ambition lines up, that it's always God's desire that is put on someone's heart, because men have selfish And so we've got to be very careful that all of it is in harmony, because when it is, then you know it. And everybody knows it. And it's not torture for anybody else. You know, I mean, there's nothing more torturous than someone saying, you know, I got the desire to teach, man. And, oh, man, you ever been there? Oh. And it's like I'm thinking, I got the desire to kill myself. Oh. Every three minutes. Oh, is this, oh, hey, where are you going? <laughs> oh. All right, next one. We're taught that the call to spiritual leadership is a responsible calling and not one to be entered into lightly. The word overseer, according to the New Testament, the terms bishop, pastor, elder are synonymous. When you compare the qualifications that we see back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 with those in Titus chapter 1, you'll see that those given for elders in Titus 1 are exactly the same as given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the word pastor, the word elder, the word overseer, the word bishop, they're all synonymous, they're all the same office. And if you go through and you consider what the Bible teaches, the responsibility of an elder, an elder is, in 1 Timothy 5, the responsibility is to rule well. 1 Timothy 5, the responsibility of an elder is to work diligently at preaching and teaching the Word of God. The responsibility of an elder, according to James, is to pray for the sick. According to 1 Peter 5 that we read, is to care for the church, to be examples for others. And Acts 15 is to set policy. 1 Timothy 4 is to ordain other leaders. It's a very responsible calling one that should not be entered into lightly by any man, but only those God has given a desire, a relentless passion to fulfill. You know, often there's a false sense of humility. And I realize that, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, human arrogance and godly confidence. And, uh, and there's a real fine line there, and we need to recognize and understand that. But it is not arrogant to seek out that which God has called you to do. In fact, if anything, it's disobedient to do otherwise. If God has called you, given you desire to do something, having come to know Christ, the Bible says that he has gifted you or imparted to you a spiritual gift or gifts for the purpose of serving the Lord. You know, before we were believers, you know, God existed to serve us. And then we find out that, wow, we had everything backwards, didn't we? Because after we came to faith in Christ, we realized that we exist to serve God. And so then God gives us gifts to use to serve him and to serve his people, to equip his people for the work of ministry, to build the body of Christ up so that we can do the things that we're, we're called to do, to you know, proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. And so all of a sudden we realize that now we exist to serve God. And there's that fine line between confidence and arrogance. But when you know what God has called you to do, you can enter into it confidently because you know that he has equipped you, he has empowered you, he has enabled you, and he has led you to do what he has called you to do. And I'll tell you what, it's it's frustrating on the part of many people when you have that peace knowing that where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to do, and they're still trying to find that niche, and they're just upset because it just bugs them every day to see you at peace with God. But don't don't let that sidetrack you. Because there are many times where people are going to want to sidetrack you. You just got to stay focused on the Lord. Fix your eyes on Him. It's like, you know, I know what my gift is. I know what my calling is. I know what my my ministry is. I know what God wants me to do. And so no matter what, you know, if you can't do it one place, you do it another place. I mean, there's always always going to be some place where God wants you to exercise that gift. So never get hung up on any of that stuff. You know, God's in complete control of all of it, and we praise God for Him. It's also a rare or a fine, as he says, a rare or fine work. The word fine means noble, means honorable, means excellent, high quality. The 20th century English preacher, William Will Sangster, wrote of the ministry, he said, 
called to preach, commissioned of God to teach the word, a herald of the great king, a witness to the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy? To this supreme task, God sent his only begotten son. In all the frustration and confusion of the times, is it possible to imagine a work comparable in importance with that of proclaiming the will of God to wayward men? Can you think of anything better to do to tell wayward men God's, God's command to them is to repent, to turn from sin, and to turn to God? Can you think of anything better to do than that? Since it's not by accident, nor yet by the thrust, thrustful egotism of men, was the pulpit given the central place in the Reformed churches. It is there of design and devotion. It is there by the logic of things. It is there as the throne of the Word of God. The work of preaching and leading the church, which our Lord purchased with His very blood, is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone ever could be called. It is not a burden. It is nothing but a glorious honor to be able to preach and teach the truth of God's Word. The last but not least of these facets of calling has to do with the fact that, you know what? It's a rigorous work. It's work. He said it is work. Those who work diligently, those who diligently work, those looking for an easy time will not find it in ministry. The ministry is work, a demanding, lifelong task. Paul commanded Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy. He says he reminded the Thessalonians to, quote, appreciate those who diligently labor to, the work, to work to the point of exhaustion. I among you have charge over you and the Lord. To the Colossians, he said, we proclaim him. In fact, this is our baseball chapel verse. We proclaim him, speaking of Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to God's power, which mightily works within me. The work of ministry is not a nine-to-five job. It's not something that you punch in in the morning and you punch out at the end of the day and then say, don't bother me after that. Call me during office hours. The work of ministry is a, is a rigorous labor of love, realizing that we are under compulsion to serve Christ, who gave his very best for us. You know, the Apostle Paul, if you remember in our study through the book of, through the book of Acts, and in fact in Acts 20 where he warned the Ephesian elders about you know, the coming of false teachers, he also makes a very vivid word picture for us that it relates to his own personal ministry. In Acts 20, verse 33, he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands, and I can imagine him holding up his hand saying, you know, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I can imagine him standing before people saying, listen, you can accuse me of many things but none of them hold any merit whatsoever. There's no foundation to them at all because I didn't covet your silver. I didn't cover your gold. I didn't cover your clothing. You know, I worked with my hands day and night laboring diligently so that you cannot disqualify the message that I shared with you. And what he's saying is that, you know what, it was hard work. I got up every morning and I worked as a leather maker, you know, a tent maker, a leather maker. I worked with my hands in the business world. And at lunchtime or when we took a break, then you remember, then I taught you the truth of God's word. Then I went back to the marketplace and I worked with my hands again. And after we were done working at night, I taught you again the truth of God's word in the evenings. And I prepared in the evenings while you were sleeping, I prepared for the next day's message. And I got up and I did it again. One of the things that we've got to be very careful as we look is that it's very lazy. I mean, it's very easy to become lazy in ministry. And, and that becomes very subjective, you know, and it's like people, oh, who are you to say, you know, what, what laziness is? Who are you to say, what, you know, how diligent something is? You know what, but we all have that responsibility. You know, and we need to recognize and understand that it's very easy in ministry to become lazy. And, and that's not to say that, you know, a lay ministry position is better than something else. I'm not trying to do that, and it's not a comparison to that. But it, it troubles me when I talk to people that I know that are in, you know, parachurch organizations, nonprofit organizations, things of that nature. And you say to them, you know, what, what, what did you do this week? Well, uh, I, um, I had lunch with somebody, 
you know, then I met, you know, I met another person and I, we had a discipleship time and then I prepared for a Bible study. And, and you know, and I, I, I kind of go, okay, what did you do after Monday? <laughs> and that was the whole week? See, and, it, you know, and, I, and it's very awkward to discuss things like that because people sit there and they cringe, but it, you gotta, you got to look at what God is saying, you know, and every person in a ministry position has to have a clear conscience before God and ask the question, Lord, you know what, have I done all that you required of me today? Because it's too easy to skate. It's too easy to delegate. It's too easy to have everybody else doing everything else and then not have to do anything yourself. And that's not the example of spiritual leadership. Paul said, hey... Remember my example. I worked day and night so that no one ever, ever could accuse me of using the ministry for personal gain. I mean, I work diligently. Those who work diligently deserve a double honor. We'll talk about that. But they're to work diligently. And if the evidence isn't there, you know, and, and, and objective measurement's there, there's nothing wrong with holding people accountable and saying, wait a minute. You know, we, we give, as a family, we give to various ministries. But the ministry, from a stewardship standpoint, has to be a ministry where we see that God is blessing the work or diligent efforts of those in that ministry. It becomes a stewardship matter. And if we see someone who's skating or not doing anything, and the majority of their time is meeting with people to, to, so that they can get money from them, and there's no fruit of their ministry, I'm going to be accountable, you're going to be accountable to God for what you're doing with the resources God's entrusted to you to use for the furthering of the kingdom of God. We all have to evaluate ministry to see whether or not it is meeting that which God has set up. And man, you know, it's like I can just feel people get really uncomfortable when you start to talk about things like that. But yet at the same time, it doesn't matter because I haven't shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so as we look at this calling for ministry we begin to realize that, you know what, it's not, it's not something that's to be taken lightly. It is a respectable calling. It's trustworthy. It's a no-brainer. If you have a desire by God, He's given you a desire, a relentless desire to serve Him in a way uh, that, that will further the kingdom of God, then you know what, you need to answer that call. Any man who has such a desire has a responsibility as an overseer to preach and teach the Word of God, to rule well, to pray for the sick, to care for the church, to be examples for others to follow, to set church policy, to ordain other leaders that we see that gift that has been imparted to them as well. It's a fine work. There's nothing better than doing what God has called us to do this side of heaven. But it is a work, and it's a work at that. But it is not a work as many of us define work. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't labor when I study to prepare to teach. I love it. It's not a burden. Somebody goes, well, how do you find time to do it? It's like, I don't even understand the question. It's just, it's just what God has called me to do. It's what God has gifted me to do. It's, it's, it's natural. You, you, to study the Word of God as a labor or a burden? Are you kidding me? That's awesome. I can't wait. Our son's getting married this afternoon, and people think I'm crazy being here to teach. I just can't be late. <laughs> but hey, what better place to be? You know, when you're studying God's truth and God reveals truth to you, you can't wait to run out and tell people about it because there's nothing better than to know God's truth and then to live according to it. There's nothing that will set people free from sin quicker than to know God's truth and to live according to it. There's nothing better than that. Now, the desire that one may have doesn't necessarily mean that it qualifies them. And so next time, next week, we'll look at what those qualifications are. It starts with desire, it starts with a calling, but then there's also a standard that God sets as well to objectively measure those in leadership as to whether or not they qualify according to God's standard. And that's good stuff too. And I had some of that, but you know what? I'm no fool. <laughs> let, let, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for those that you have... Uh, that you have called to ministry. God, we just pray for them. We pray for their leadership. We pray for their example. We pray that they would be open and teachable and held accountable to the very standards that you've set for that office, that position. God, we pray that those who are in a position of leadership that have never sensed the calling or desire to be there, that they'd recognize there's nothing wrong and it's not humbling in any way to recognize that they may be in the wrong place trying to do something that, God, you haven't called them or equipped them to do. 
And therein lies the frustration that so many feel and sense. And yet, God, I know how difficult that is to try to, uh, to live out the dreams or the aspirations or the desires of those around us. Sometimes the pressure that is there, those who are in ministry that have the pressure of making a living for their family, of producing income for them, and yet at the same time, it's, it, it's just such a labor to try to do something in their own human strength. God, I just pray for them, and I know how, difficulty, how difficult that must be. But yet at the same time, they'll never find peace until they recognize and, and accept whatever it is, is their, their lot in life. You know, it's been said that if you find something you love to do, that you'll never work a day in your life. And that is so true of a godly calling. While you define it as work, it is not work as so many of us define work, as something laborious, something that's a task, that's a burden that you know, we try to shy away from and retire from as quickly as we can. But yet those of us who have found that calling and that gift that God has given us, we recognize that when we serve you, it's not work as many define work. There's no better place to be. So God, I pray for everyone that's listening to these words that they would be sensitive to your leading in their life because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And in addition to that, you have equipped or given each one of us a gift or gifts according to 1 Corinthians 12 for the purpose of serving you and of serving your people. God, I pray that every person in this room that knows Christ knows what that gift or gifts are and that they'll begin immediately making an effort to develop those gifts for the service of your sake and your kingdom. And we just thank you and praise you that where you call us, where you lead us, you equip, you equip us, you enable us, you empower us to do the work that you have prepared for us to do even before we came to faith in Christ, that work which you have prepared for us to do for the furthering of your kingdom and to your glory. Amen.